Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and today I'm joined by Alex Stewart. Good morning, Joe. Seb Stafford Bloor. Hello, Joe. Uh, we've got so much to talk about today, gang. Uh, it's going to be probably a fairly long episode. We've got midweek football occurred of a European kind, uh, including PSG. And we've agreed sort of hammering uh, Barcelona. We talk about that quite a lot. We talk about the shape of a future Barcelona. We talk about the mbappe Holland axis. That's very exciting. We also talk a little bit about Usman Dembele, what's happened there. Uh, in part two, we talk about Marco Rosa taking over the Dortmund job as of the summer. Uh, we talk about the way that uh, Edin Terzic looks uh, looks good. And uh, we talk a little bit about Scott Parker at Fulham. Uh, oh, there's a part three to today's episode too, including Joe's players quotes and facts list. Uh, but mainly we discuss Arsenal in part three. Uh, a little bit about Martin Erdegaard, a bit about Bakayo Saka, even Zinchenko, who I'm aware plays for a different team. Uh, but it's a, it's a jam-packed show. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, it was good, wasn't it, uh, Seb? It was fine, yeah. It was okay. You know, this is at the beginning where <laughs> people listening uh, are going to decide whether to carry on or not. Oh, I'm being fair to it. Like, uh, you know, I don't want to overpromise. And, you know, if they have a really good time, perhaps they'll, you know, they'll, they'll have some unexpected joy. At the moment, okay. I've set it as a kind of six out of ten level of expectation so you know that feels six no no yeah. no it's at least six and a half i'll take your point but maybe you're right maybe when people if people listen and they enjoy today's episode then they'll probably lose their fucking minds over a normal eight out of ten right is this a good way of selling a podcast i don't know that Let's it is set the expectations low and no one's going to get disappointed what about this uh six out of ten today but ten out of ten every day at the athletic yeah where you can read about football and other sports uh, with a long list of writers, including David Ornstein, Daniel Taylor, who I believe today was nominated for what was probably the 100th time for uh, the Sports Journalism Awards. Congratulations to him. Indeed, Katie Wyatt, who was also nominated for that award this year. Congratulations to Katie. And uh, lots of other uh, amazing writers too, including people we've had on the podcast. Jack Pitt-Brook. We've had Charlie Eccleshare. We've had... Uh, uh, Carl. We've had Carl on. Yeah? Carl, everyone's favourite Carl. Hey, uh, Art de Roche was nominated too. Yeah, well done him as well. We haven't had oh, him that's on the right. podcast yet, but he's And, um, and he's, Matt he's Slater brilliant. as well. Oh, he's Matt nominated. That's nice. Deserves it. Deserves it. Well, you know, at the moment, I believe there is a sort of special Champions League deal occurring uh, whereby you can get 50% off uh, an annual subscription, which works out to be £2.50 per month, a.k.a. 8p per day. Uh, it really is worth it. You're probably, you know, you're probably spending more on the coffee that you buy on your commute to work, which you're definitely doing in this time when we're all allowed outside. Uh, so, you know, give it a try. Just see how you feel. And I'm pretty sure you'll like it. And if you want to do that, you can visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. That's theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. Anyway, for now, 
I will leave you in the uh, clearly not so warm embrace and the mm, temperate hands of uh, myself, Alex Stewart, and Seb Stafford Bloor. Let's begin by talking about PSG, because they hammered, I think that's a fair term, isn't it, Seb? They hammered Barcelona? I think hammered is probably about fair, because even at 1-1, you felt goals are coming, and they're only coming from one team on the pitch. Yeah, it just about qualified as a hammering, didn't it? I think by the end of it, it felt very comprehensive. When when uh, Mbappe scored his final goal, that was it. Felt not only conclusive but also kind of right and reflective of what we'd seen for the last sort of hour and a half. Mm. I'm going to read something to you from my notes now, Seb. And uh, it, it re- re- related to Barcelona. We'll come back to talk about Barcelona afterwards, but uh, I think this is a nice place to start because it it felt like a a big shifting. The earth was shifting under our feet. Yeah, I wrote I wrote Barcelona are a ghost of their former self, a shadow. It's like when Samwise Gamgee saves Frodo from the Tower of Sirith Ungol and he makes his shadow large like a monster to scare the orcs before he and Frodo descend onto the plateau of Gorgoroth. Except this time, the orcs, in this case uh, PSG, I guess, the orcs kill and eat Sam. And they did that, the orcs, um, with some direction from Maurizio Pochettino. And that's the first thing I want to, to talk to you about because... Uh, this was my first opportunity to watch uh, Pochettino's PSG side. And I was looking for, you know, Spursy type hallmarks. The only thing I saw that I recognised was just really great football. <laughs> is, is that fair? <laughs> Likeable person on the touchline. Smiling yeah. Poch, happy Poch. I sure, recognize all happy players. People seem to be I relaxed. Think, I think we, you and I spoke after about 40 minutes of that game. And my only conclusion was... God, I missed Poch. <laughs> yep. You had nothing else to say. You just seemed to I had be nothing else to yeah, add. despondent. Yeah, well, I, you know, actually, there, there were a few signs of it. I, um, it's, it's early days. And if you remember back to the, the kind of the opening few months of his time at Spurs, you'll remember that actually, while the results gradually picked up, some of the football was pretty brutal. And they, they kind of outworked other teams rather than outplayed them. So it feels like PSG are well ahead. And also, let's be fair, PSG are full of, uh, you know, have a, have a lot more talent than um, Pochettino inherited at Spurs. But uh, a pair of hardworking forwards, um, which uh, also included uh, Mario Cardi, which I wasn't expecting to see. He worked hard. Um, Moise Keane played very well. And as well as, 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 as brilliant as he was with the ball, like, one of the things that I took away from that game was was watching Kylian Mbappe drop back and work hard to protect his fullback behind him. I thought it was really impressive, and that, that's a very potched thing. One of the other things we talked about as it relates to Mbappe, and maybe we should just start talking about him now because he was clearly the star of the game. In fact, there are two stars that have come from you know the midweek Champions League fixtures, and we'll, we'll probably discuss the other one a bit later. Um, but the main thing I noticed about Mbappe, other than his brilliant goals, um, is uh, that in games particularly for France where I've watched him play uh often his role is you know breaking the final line running in behind waiting for those passes in in this game he had a much more well-rounded performance uh he was in the 10 role quite a lot it seemed like Verratti was doing a lot of work uh, with and without the ball and they felt like there was a lot of space for Mbappe to to run with it and there were moments mostly throughout the second half I think where 
we could see just how press resistant he is. I mean, he was he was carrying the ball from all sorts of corridors through the pitch, uh, you know, beating three or four players at a time before making a pass off. He's not just a one trick pony, is he? He's a he's a player that we think of as exceptionally speedy and very very deadly and accurate in front of goal. But uh, those performances, uh, sorry, the ability to, to 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 have those kind of performances deeper on the field is uh, something I'm, I'm sure people knew uh, existed, but was new to me. Yeah, well, it was quite new to me as well, because if there were times during that game where he was almost playing as a number 10, like both in, in function and position. Uh, it was really interesting to see. Your point about France is is uh, worth exploring too, because I feel like that's a beginning point of a conversation about Didier Deschamps and whether like he's the right person to, to get the most out of that group of players. Sure. Um, it's also, I felt as if Mbappe... He was brilliant, but he also he took what he was given on Tuesday night, didn't he? And I, I felt sort of, I felt as if some of the the spaces that he inhabited and some of the effect that he had described a lot of what's wrong with this Barcelona team and a lot of the kind of the imbalances, particularly in midfield. No, absolutely. Um, I mean, the, 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 before we move on to Barcelona, this PSG side uh, at the beginning of the game wasn't entirely sure I was going to go because I'm aware that they're starting without Neymar, without Di Maria. You know, it seems like there are a couple of significant injuries to the team. They look so well balanced, Alex. It's a kind like the question that comes to me afterwards is, well, actually, what what do you do with Neymar? <laughs> yeah. So um, there's there's a thing called the Ewing theory, which is that that teams play better without their star players. Um, is it anything to do of... with sheep? How do, where do the sheep come in? No, no, it's it's a basketball player. I can't remember which uh, one. Um, oh, Patrick Ewing. Patrick Ewing. Patrick right. Ewing. Okay. Yeah. Um, Patrick Ewing of Space Jam fame, I believe. Sure, probably his finest moment. Um, it was, and and I, I don't. I, it's arguable that Neymar actually isn't PSG's star in terms of playing ability because Mbappe is Mbappe. But obviously, he has a, a greater kind of clout in the game or, or a greater period of time at the highest level. Um, and PSG, I guess, you know. <laughs> You'd be silly not to try and include him, but then are you shifting Mbappe back across to the right-hand side where he has tended to play? Um, is he going to be as effective there? Is there some way of working without maybe Icardi uh, and, and playing kind of more uh, fluid front three where you've got no one who's a sort of out-and-out striker, but you have that, that player rotation, which I think is something that Pochettino has done before at Spurs. Um, mm. Seb will correct me if I'm wrong. Um because you can't really not play Neymar for various reasons. So it's going to be intriguing to see how he manages it. But I think Pochettino has the personality and the experience to be able to do that. Yeah, OK. Um, my next question then, I suppose, is uh, relates to this in some way. Also, Patrick Ewing was also in The Exorcist 3. I don't know if anybody wants to know that. but Was he really? He was. As a silent as, cameo. Uh, but... Uh, what is it just a, a member of the public isn't patrick ewing seven foot tall <laughs> i guess so i don't know how many members of the public there are in the exorcist films i mean i've to be honest i've only seen the first one i'll be so. completely honest i didn't go beyond the first one either so sure is he is he a walk-on is it patrick ewing playing himself or is it just oh look at that exceptionally tall member of the public walking in I can't answer that question, but I can answer a different one, which is uh, what did he say in the 2009 ad for Snickers? Well, he suggested that those who uh, eat the candy bar might get dunked on by Patrick Chewing. That doesn't make sense. That's a bad joke. 
the reason I, I was going to link my question to what Alex was saying is because uh, uh, Mbappe, Holland, there's a new Messi Ronaldo th- axis or whatever it's called. I love Champions League and uh, when I saw uh, Mbappe score the hat trick yesterday, I uh, got free motivation. So thanks to him and uh, and uh, yeah, it was a it was a nice evening. I'm actually excited about it. I know that it's you know. It's what the mainstream people would say, but sometimes the mainstream people say things because it gets everyone excited, and it got me excited. Uh, I'm just looking forward to a time when you know Messi and Ronaldo don't dominate the conversation, and it would appear that if there are you know two players who might be vying for that uh, sort of top spot over the next generation, it's going to be Mbappe and Holland, who already appear to have. Uh, some kind of relationship anyway, a little bit of a rivalry going on. Perhaps they're inspired by the rivalry of Messi and Ronaldo. Uh, but somebody, uh, you know, rose the question yesterday. Uh, I can't remember who it was on Twitter. Someone I follow saying, you know, uh, with, with, a, with a Twitter poll, you can't buy both or you can't buy, you know, you can only have one of these players, <clears throat> the list including Mbappe and Haaland. Uh, Holland. And I was starting to think, think about things from a Manchester City perspective. If you're Manchester City sitting there and watching the game, uh, PSG Barcelona this week, and you're thinking, uh, we're working very hard, presumably, I don't know, to uh, to try to secure Lionel Messi at the end of his contract this summer, and we're going to pay him so much money that we wouldn't be able to afford to buy anybody else. Uh, but should we really be doing that now? Do you know what I mean? What if, why, why aren't they trying to buy... Holland, why wouldn't they be trying to buy Mbappe? Let's just assume that they could only afford one player in terms of wages. Is Messi now the wrong choice? It's two different questions though, isn't it? Because your your reasons for signing one are different to your reasons for signing the other because it, it, it's not really about football. You, you know um, you know, in the film Ready Player One where like they're all running around that little world and they're trying to find the the keys and they're kind of the like you know to it, it, it's a it's a singular contest in which there's one only one objective that's kind of what signing like a a Leo Messi in his mid 30s is like it's a look what I've got look what I've got and look at this this presentation and um don't we all look great with our sponsors logo on Leo Messi it's not really about what happens next whereas obviously if you sign a a Holland or if you sign a uh, an Mbappe then it's about the next decade isn't it so they're they're kind of they're two different tasks Joe Right, well, let's explore that then, because they're both going to be signed by someone, I would imagine, uh, you know, unless PSG double down and win the Champions League this summer and turn into, you know, all-time greats. Imagine that. Anyway, there's a a school of thought which would suggest that, uh, you know, which one you prefer probably describes your your tastes as a fan. Alex? Um, Can I pick a tidy defensive midfielder instead? No, that's you cannot. I like no, you okay. cannot. You pick one of these players. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously they're two different types of players. Um, there is a kind of uh, a, a brutality and a speed with the way that that Haaland conducts himself. Mbappe has more finesse, possibly. Um, I think you made that point as well about. Um, Mbappe dropping off, being a bit more creative. Um, someone described him on Twitter as being like, if you took Thierry Henry and made him twenty-five to thirty percent faster on and off the ball, um, it, it you know he he has that ability to do all sorts of different things. So I guess if you if you're looking for a kind of blunt object winning brutality to go back to that word, then you're a Holland guy. And if you like finesse and 
and smoothness and skill. Maybe you're an Mbappe guy. I, I think I think it's interesting because their paths in the game are going to be divergent. I, I can see Mbappe staying at PSG for quite a long time, actually, whereas Haaland's going to move. And I wonder whether he becomes a bit more nomadic and there is an echo there of you know Ronaldo moving around considerably more than Messi has done um and that people have a kind of loyalty to PSG through Mbappe but follow Holland as an individual as he moves from club to club I I don't know it's going to be really interesting to see it play out I mean I guess the thing to say at the moment is Holland uh, Holland is a, a year or two younger than Mbappe right uh and I think you know, the same way that we were describing, describing Mbappe during this Barcelona game, doing things certainly that the the me as a as a as a occasional observer hasn't seen before in terms of the dropping into the ten, the slightly more finesse. I would say a year ago my expectation of Mbappe was that he was super fast and he could run in the back and he was kick the ball pretty hard. That's what I see as a as Erling Holland. So perhaps there's still time to develop, of course, but as it currently stands, I think you're right, it does appear that Holland is a uh He's is an exceptionally effective striker. I mean, the goals that he scored. So I watched them last night. Uh, Dortmund playing Sevilla. It was an interesting game, actually. It was a it was a slightly weird one. Um, Dortmund started very brightly. Sevilla got this sort of unusual deflected goal after a nice bit of chopping. And uh, after that point, Dortmund established themselves within the game and just completely dominated. I mean, Sevilla, a team that you know have looked pretty decent in La Liga recently, versus Dortmund, who I think have looked very shaky in the Bundesliga. It was not the tone of the game that I think was expected. And one of the reasons for that was because of Holland. Every single time he got the ball, even when he didn't have the ball, he was charging at a defence which was clearly afraid of him and was backing off to its detriment. You know, And a couple of the goals came from scenarios like that. Backing off too far, uh, Holland's either able to play a little one-two with Royce to get in behind or is smashing the ball from ahead. And you can see that, that you know players who are probably, in some cases, 10 years his senior treat him with a reverence that you would only treat players like Lewandowski or Ronaldo or, or, or Messi. Um, but I suppose, Seb, we, we're yet to see how he can expand his game beyond that. I mean, the argument would be if you score uh, 18 Champions League goals in 13 Champions League games, then you don't need to expand your game beyond that. But what do you think? I think the underappreciated part of Holland's game is the way he combines with the players around him. Like People talk about the relationship with, he has with Jadon Sancho, and that seems to have unlocked like a different part of his skill set like his combinations are very good his movement is brilliant obviously but it's not just kind of what he does beyond the last man and and, and in the act of scoring and so the case becomes like the, the question becomes what happens when you surround him by surround him with not just kind of developing talent but properly realized ability what happens if you if you replace a Sancho with a uh, I don't know a De Bruyne for instance and I think that's what's interesting about that uh, a word on uh, Usman Dembele too because he was a player a few years ago, we were expected to be, you know, big star of the game. We appreciate, of course, that he's had injury issues and he's in a in what I think is fair to describe as a as a struggling Barcelona side. Uh, Seb, you make the point here that he was kind of outperformed by Moise Keane, uh this this midweek. Um, what are your expectations of him? Should shouldn't he be currently occupying a similar territory to the one that we're discussing? I wonder whether I'm unfair on Usman Dembele because I we we had a, a script written by. Nick Miller not so long ago when he talked about the the impact of the the Philip Coutinho transfer um if you remember and yeah um the kind of flux of Neymar going to PSG and the way that um 
the way that Barcelona tried to kind of compensate for their loss. And, and Dembele, in a way, was um, a beneficiary of that, but also a victim. And clearly injuries have been a problem, but you can't help notice that as a, as a casual fan, as someone that doesn't watch um, week to week in the La Liga, like you would think every time Dembele comes across your screen, he's doing something crap in an important moment. Like you let you think back to, to what happened at the, um, at the end of that first leg against Liverpool before the, the four nil reversal at Anfield, like in the chance that he missed there, like he missed a really good chance um, on Tuesday night in the first half. And he is, he's less than the sum of his abilities parts at the moment. And yeah, because on paper he should be perfect. Shouldn't he? I mean, he should be an ideal wide forward in that system. He should be able to work beautifully with someone like Messi, even at this stage of his career. He's a nice little compliment to Anthony Fatty when he's fit. Uh, he should have worked better with Luis Suarez when he was at the club. And, and yet you, you kind of, he just seems like a, a really decadent instrument that just doesn't work. Um, that is kind of out of pitch all the time. And um, I don't have a more educated perspective than that, but it's just, it's just an observation really, Joe. Yeah, I feel sorry for him. Um, let's talk about Barcelona generally, though, because it must be difficult for Barcelona fans to watch what is undoubtedly, um, you know, a, a, I suppose the, the nicest way of describing it is as a, as a recycling, right? This is one of, again, my first instances of watching them this season, one of the first times I've seen them under, under Koeman. And I'm so used to, I, ha I have this kind of trigger response to seeing an English team facing Barcelona, which is terror. You know, because the last 10, 15 years, if they've taught us anything, they've taught us that Barcelona will tear English sides apart in the uh, in the Champions League. And it can be it can be a devastating affair. Um, but this team that I watched on Wednesday, that I have no word to describe them, Alex, other than nothingy. <laughs> Nothing plus messy. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. scrolling down through their squad list at the moment. It's um, it's a far cry from when they could put out consistently the best team in European football. Um, you know, there just isn't the the depth of quality, and and obviously some of that is because players that four five years ago were the absolute pinnacle of their position, people like Sergio Busquets, Gerard Piquet. They're getting old, aren't they? And people do get old. And I think the problem that Barcelona have is there is such a a culture of attachment to players at that club. There's the whole narrative around La Masia, obviously. Um, you know, when people come through there, you know, they that 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 there's very few other clubs that kind of hammer home this Barca DNA thing. And what that can do is create a system whereby those players simply aren't cleared out quickly enough. Um, there needs to be, uh, I don't want to say a nastiness, but a kind of an ultra pragmatism around squad building. And sometimes when a when a club is so uh, indebted to its youth system, there's been a core of players that have achieved everything together, stripping out those players and getting rid of them. And, you know, for example, um, Seb and I were talking when we did the stereo broadcast last night about Frankie de Jong um, and uh, a couple of the other guys that came out of that Ajax side. And, and de Jong is the kind of person who you stick in as a pivot, you build a new midfield around, but that's not going to happen because Sergio Busquets is still there and he's earning a huge amount of money and he's loved by everybody. And I, I just feel like, um, you know, with the, uh, with, with the elections coming up, with a coach in place who's 
probably going to just be there until you know the next president comes in and gets his man, which might well be Xavi. Um, that I, it's very difficult to see anything other than this sort of stumbling continuity, which feels like the right thing for Barcelona because of this heritage, but is absolutely the wrong thing for them for football reasons. Well, let, let me say two things. The first is uh, I'm glad you, you mentioned Sergio Busquets because my sort of favourite moment of the game was when he was substituted off sort of midway through the second half. And, uh, you know, he gracefully walks to the edge of the pitch. He sits down in his little seat in the stadium, unshaven. You know, he's looking old, right? And I'm watching it thinking, I'm looking at the expression on his face. David Attenborough should be narrating this, right? This feels <laughs> like when you watch when you watch uh, Blue Planet or whatever. No, that's in the sea, wasn't it? When you watch Life and you have the bit about the big old buffalo, which, you know, buffaloes are pretty fucking stupid, right? But they're clever enough to know the unspoken social hierarchy when the old buffalo is displaced by the young buffalo and you look at its eyes and every other time all you see is just like a stupid buffalo or like hungry for grass or whatever it is that buffaloes do. But this time you see a melancholy, you see... Uh, you know, you see a, a crumbling empire, you see Rome has fallen, and you see recognition. And I'm not claiming that uh, Sergio Busquets is A, like a buffalo, or B, saw Rome falling. But there was just something about the way that he sat down. And another stat that I have here that I think the commentators mentioned at the beginning of the game, which really, more than anything uh, that we've talked about so far, emphasises the um, the reality of this transition, is that apparently Pedri, you know, 18-year-old young Pedri, made more Barcelona appearances than any other player this season so far so the tide is shifting um i suppose really it's just you know have to think about where this next barcelona team even comes from seb i mean is it from within are you impressed by the other young players you've seen because a number of them were were uh, were substituted on um in the second half it feels like there needs to be uh there needs to be a, a kind of there needs to be a sort of a middle band between what's sort of moving out of the club at the moment and what's coming in the future. It feels like there's a big chasm between those two generations. Um, I like Pedri. I think Trincao might be quite a good player at some point. Arroyo is a good player. Fati, we know, is a very good player. But can you see like a team being constructed out of those parts immediately or within a year or two? I don't think so. I, I think I think what this Barcelona is at the moment is kind of a legacy of how poorly the club have spent money. Like I, yeah. I know it's an old point, but I go back to the Pjanic signing. You think, what are you thinking? Not necessarily like, okay, maybe Artur isn't the right player there, and it, you know, I, I thought he was Wasn't good. Like was some surprised. kind of special swap though, which did some helping too. I, I'm, I'm old, sure, and in I'm, the background, I'm sure there. Well, I'm sure there are myriad reasons why it was the right thing financially to do. Maybe, but from a squad building perspective, you replace Artur with a player like Pjanic who. A really good player is prime, no longer in his prime, but also someone that doesn't really fit into the system. Doesn't he's not what you would describe as a Barcelona player, uh, and yet you're allocating resources to employing him, so he's going to be on a very healthy salary. When was the last time that the, the presidency changed? It's well, changed a, a lot more than. By, it's by changed force. a lot more than. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's changed a lot more than Madrid's, hasn't it? Well, yeah, but that's I, I wouldn't compare it to Madrid because obviously Florentino Perez is a special case. Um, but yeah, there is more flux at Barcelona. But the re um, reason I bring that up is because, uh, you know, there is that some sometime uh, political argument that says that, um, 
you know, four four years in the states, five years in the UK isn't an, isn't a long enough term, not long enough to get anything done. If you if your uh, populace are or, or are repeatedly sort of swinging between two different ideas, that you never make any uh, you never make any um, progress. I mean, is there is there a suggestion here that there's been too many uh, too many chefs at the broth no, I, of Barcelona? No, I don't think so. I, I think I think it's simpler than that. I think it's dysfunction. I think it's um, forgetting what happens when a presidency changes. I think like it's about how well the club runs during a presidency. I think if you look at the decisions made uh, over the last half a decade, I don't think that's about flux or churn. I think it's about um, incompetence. I think it's about you'd love um, the world burned, wouldn't you, Seb? You'd love. Well, I, you'd but, love I, it. but honestly, <laughs> we, we we've talked about it so many times. But I would go back to the period that followed Neymar leaving the club. Like that's just it's it's unforgivable like some of the decisions mm. that were made there like you just that's not the way that a um that's not the way that a smart football club runs because the the decisions made during that period um have set the tone for the next generation they are generational mistakes they define what's about to follow and that's that's been proven to be true Okay, very exciting stuff. Oh, midweek Champions League, wasn't it fun? Anyway, we'll be back after the break uh, to talk about Marco Rosa. Uh, we'll get to talk about Dortmund a little bit. Um, maybe if there's time, one or two other things too. Back in a mo. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Okay, Alex, I'm going to ask you about Marco Rosa now, a little bit about his strengths, his weaknesses, his suitability to the Dortmund pool of talent. But before I do that, let's just uh, clarify the situation here. Marco Rosa, current coach or head coach of uh, Borussia Mönchengladbach, a team doing rather well in... Uh, I hope they're doing rather well. They always normally are, aren't they? Are they doing well? <laughs> Yeah, they're doing all right. Yeah. yeah, look at that. I was right. A team doing rather well in the Bundesliga. And uh, it's been announced that he will be taking over Borussia Dortmund, a team currently in sixth in the Bundesliga this season. Not not doing actually quite so well at all in contrast to the Champions League victory this midweek. Uh, he'll be the new head coach as of the beginning of next season, which I find weird because he's already in a job and it just seems like a strange thing. Why do they announce it? Why do they have to announce it? Um, I, I think in this instance, it's because there was an awful lot of conversation around it um, and both clubs were sort of trying to get ahead of the rumour mill and, and put something that I think everybody in German football knew was going to happen to bed and and get it out in the open and say, right, we've we've said it now. Can everyone please stop talking about it? Of course, that's not going to happen. But There's no guess... fans in the stadium, I guess. You know, Rose is kind of lucky in a sense, isn't he? Because I don't think people people wouldn't be particularly happy about that. Uh, no, I I guess not. And um, you know, Rosa has has built a very exciting Borussia Mönchengladbach team. Um, Gladbach in German football are a, a, a club that are traditionally associated with a kind of young, exciting attacking style of play from uh, their, their great team of the 1970s. And he sort of rediscovered that and rekindled it for Gladbach. So, you know, the, losing him to, um, to you know, one of the other two or three big clubs in Germany is, is obviously going to sting quite a bit. 
Okay, well, listen, I watched Dortmund last night and I see exciting young talent. We have Sancho, we have Holland, we have Bellingham, we even have uh, Moda Hood, who scored a fantastic goal last night. We've Kanji. Uh, you know, it, it, talk to me about Marco Rosa. Is he suited to this this pool of players? How do you think, you know, what's his management style? What does he play like? What should I expect? What do I want to know? Tell me about Rosa. Uh, so he's, he's very much in the sort of come out of Red Bull uh, German style of coaching. Yeah, you can expect to see lots and lots of pressing, uh, lots of verticality, uh, very dynamic fullback attacks. Um, at, uh, at Gladbach, he built a, a side that it, it didn't really counter-attack, but it a- attacked with so much pace in transition that it almost felt like a counter-attack um, with people like uh, Marcus Turam, Alison Plier, uh, Stendhal, um, He's he's got, I think he's a yeah he's he's one of these modern coaches and the, the, there's a lot of tactical shifts um, between games. He emphasizes a quite a theoretical approach. I think there's probably or possibly in some areas a feeling that maybe this is slightly too big a job for him at this point. He's you know he's done well with Gladbach. He's developed a good team, but he hasn't had necessarily the experience of of a of a really top club yet there's a little bit less pressure at Gladbach and obviously Dortmund are expected to be the only side that challenge Bayern Munich I, I know Red Bull Leipzig are now in that conversation but um, I believe they're also 16 points behind at this point in the season well yeah so I, it, it's it's not gone well for Dortmund and, and the sort of the Favre um, era dribbled on for longer than it ought to have done um, but I think that the expectations around that job are massive in Germany um, and it is, it's still quite a step up even with everything that he's achieved at Gladbach Seb, uh, Edin Terzic who I guess is the caretaker for Borussia Dortmund um, young good looking chap isn't he? He, he reminds me and I'm going to be really careful when I say this because it sounds so offensive he reminds me a little bit of Tim Sherwood just because of how much club merchandise he wears. So he, he just, he, 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 you know, like, you know, when, when you have a, when you, you have an interim manager, they, they generally go one way or the other. They either go yeah, full yeah, yeah. suit and they look like they're, you know, almost wearing black tie. They or they make ridiculous. it ab- Yeah. Or, or they make it absolutely clear that they have um, no designs in the top job whatsoever. And they wear like yeah, a gilet yeah, yeah, and a, yeah, yeah tracksuit. So it's Terzic a difficult is very much- position to be in, it isn't is, it? Because it is, I was thinking like also the, the amount of club wear that you don't, really tells people how much of a club man you are, how much of a work man you are. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, If you if you are, as I say, you're a Tim Sherwood, you wear all of the Spurs gear down to your socks and your pants because you're, you're a company man and you are in, 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 in thrall to the, uh, to the chief execs. You've got, no, you got no bite. You know, you've got no buy. You've got no pull. Whereas if you've got your, your, your uh, you know, who's a good example? Well, Pep Guardiola. Pep Guardiola occasionally wears the hat, right? But most of the time, he's got his cool jeans on and his cool jackets, and none of them seem to be branded. Maybe I'm wrong. It could be a bad example, but he doesn't need. To, he's not. He doesn't need to be a company man. He needs to wear the branded stuff. He's Pep Guardiola. He can wear whatever the fuck he wants. You know, uh, it's like a, if exactly you're in an office that. in a corporate environment, who comes in wearing jeans and a t-shirt? Yeah, just people who have nothing to lose. Uh, anyway, um, Edin Terzic really does have nothing to lose because it's already been announced that he's not keeping his job past the summer, which again, again, to me, maybe, I'm sure there are all kinds of reasons for it, right? 
But to me, it just, well, it's no, just he weird. Is. I don't mean he's not going to have a job. I just mean he's going back down from the top job to the other job. He has he he hasn't uh, his his audition hasn't been successful is what we probably say there. Sure, but uh, you know, good looking chap anyway. Um, okay, a uh, quick word on Scott Parker, another good looking chap. Is this weird? At Fulham, uh, I watched their game at Burnley. I didn't. I'm reading Seb's notes here. I watched their game <laughs> at Burnley and have a few conclusions if they're needed. They're good. I think they might save themselves too. Uh, so, as listing my conclusions were, uh, my first conclusion was, Seb? That if you're chasing down a Newcastle United team without Callum Wilson for a couple of months, then you have a chance. Uh, and secondly, I'm super impressed because if you remember what the issues were at Fulham last time they were in the Premier League, which was a lot of players, a lot of transient characters, a lot of flux and just nonsense, just absolute chaos everywhere. Like, Parker has had elements of that to deal with. So there have been a lot of new players and he's constructed a new side on the fly in the middle of a season without the benefit of a, pool, a full pre-season with all of these players. They, they make sense. I mean, if the season was to start today uh, and again from zero, they'd survive. That forward line with Lookman, it looks really nice. The midfield is working properly. Harry Reid is playing extremely well. Uh, and the defence has been good. Like, they... They conceded a sloppy goal at Burnley. I'll admit that. Like, if you let Ashley Barnes do that, then that's not, you know, that's not a positive. But at the same time, he has succeeded where a lot of other managers failed last time round. And I do mean a lot because they went through four managers in a single season last time. So um, it's it's impressive. And even if they go down, uh, Scott Parker has done his reputation a lot of good there. Okay. Well, in in one of the coming episodes, let's talk about Fulham. More. Alex, sorry, did I interrupt you? Did you do want to say something? I was just going to say that they 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 have quietly put together a really good little squad there. Um, yeah, people absolutely. like uh, Anguissa, Loftus Cheek, Lookman, Josh Madger s- secured on loan. I think um, you know, good striker, that you know, clinical. So there's 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 something bubbling up there, and I think if if Parker continues to get them to click, and Newcastle continue to be Newcastle without Wilson, um, I think Seb's got a good point there. Yeah. Okay. We'll be back after uh, this short break to uh, talk about uh, Arsenal. This is the Tifo Football Podcast. Okay, we're back now, and uh, we're going to talk about Arsenal now, because we said that we would the other day. Uh, But before we do, uh, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to step back into Joe's player quotes and interests list. It's Joe's Quotes and Facts Database. Yes, that's right. We're back to the database now, uh, and we've got two Arsenal additions. Uh, now, uh, Seb, would you like to pick between uh, Bukayo Saka and Danny Ceballos? Ooh, interesting. Let's go Ceballos first. Okay. Well, uh, Danny Ceballos's dreams were dashed at the age of 14 when he was released by Boyhood Club Sevilla as he suffered with chronic bronchitis. To balance the sad quote, I've chosen... Oh, sorry, a sad a fact, sorry. I've chosen this quote. And this is from a now-deleted tweet, according to all sorts of uh, UK newspapers, that was posted some time, some time ago, a long time ago. Uh, the tweet reads, They should drop a bomb on the stadium and kill all those Catalan and Basque dogs. <laughs> I, I, I remember that controversy. That was, yes, that was quite that, a few days for Danny Sabana. That is a controversy. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. What? Sorry, what is yeah. the context of that? 
So when he was a Betis player, this appeared in like one of those Catalan dailies, and uh, yeah, it was a historic tweet. I mean, it's uh, so 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 the mirror say Ceballos gained notoriety in 2015 when he tweeted that a bomb should be dropped on the Camp Nou during a Barcelona game. Barca were playing um, Bilbao, who hail from Spain's Basque region, in the Copa del Rey final in 2015, when the midfielders indiscretion took place. Uh, don't really understand. It doesn't really give much. <laughs> the, the Mirror article ends with, a colourful past indeed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, let's do Bakayo Saka now, because uh, this is he's a little more fun. Um, Bakayo Saka, uh, the fact about Bakayo Saka is that his name Bakayo originates from the Yoruba tribe located in the southern, in southern Nigeria, meaning adds to happiness. Which is nice, isn't it? Because I feel like as a player, he does add to happiness. That's very nice. That's lovely. Heartwarming. Sure. Yes. There we go. Heartwarming, indeed. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the the Bakayo Saka quote is, they should drop a bomb on the... Oh, wait, no, that's the <laughs> other one. Sorry, hold on. Uh, no, this is this was a nice quote too. It was just a crying, laughing emoji, crying, laughing emoji, crying, laughing emoji. That was the quote... Uh, but of course, the context was uh, he was quote tweeting uh, the Athletics' very own Art de Roche, who uh, posted a meme of uh, Michael Jordan uh, saying something about a thing, and I can't remember the joke. And I was really thinking about I should write this down. I thought I should write down the context so that I remember it. And I thought, come on, Joe, you'll remember. You're a professional. And then I thought, yeah, that's right. I don't need to write anything down. But I so I can't remember. Art cleverly tweeted that. Saka, having had a penalty wrongly overturned, cue Michael Jordan meme, and I took that personally when I got another one. Saka loved it. Well, there we go. That was uh, Joe's player quotes and interests intrigue list. It's Joe's Quotes and Facts database. And uh, we'll be back again on Thursday with another whatever day it is. No, Tuesday. Uh, with another, with more of those things. But before we go, let's talk about Arsenal. Well, I'm going to come to Alex first to ask you, you this, and we bear in mind that as we record, uh, Arsenal playing the Europa League tonight, so perhaps there'll be an, an update on this. But um, what did you make of Martin Erdegaard's performance at the weekend as a 10, Alex? Um, I, reasonable. Um, I, think, I think as part of a unit, Arsenal are developing a nice line play behind uh, Aubameyang presuming Aubameyang goes forward as a striker. You've got three players there in, in Saka, Erdegaard and Smith-Rowe, who are mobile, who roam around. Erdegaard likes to drop off a little bit. Smith-Rowe likes to occupy wide spaces. And that, that creates a kind of a nice ability for Arsenal to get players between the lines where longer passes from the back or from central midfield can find them. And I feel that's something that they've been lacking a little bit recently. So although... I, I, he didn't necessarily stand out to me as being brilliant. You can see how the overall change in the dynamic of that that second line of three is going to be really beneficial to Arsenal going forwards. Hey Steb, are Arsenal good now? Because I'm lost. I don't know. I don't know. You can watch them and you can find them quite interesting and exciting. And then you can look at the Premier League table and they are still behind Jose Mourinho's Tottenham which means that is the kind of the floating line of goodness <laughs> or competence if you're if you're beneath it you're not good um but there are things to like I, I really like the way Saka's played I really like um the prospect of what Odegaard might do and Aubameyang is starting to play quite well as well and it's it's 
I would certainly be more interested in the project. I know that's a horrible footballism, uh, a modern footballism, but it is. It's there's there's more to there's more to be enthusiastic about. I don't know whether they're good. I wouldn't trust them to win enough games to achieve anything at the moment. But they they feel it feels like their their trajectory has been adjusted in a positive way let's put it that way let's be political about okay it. I want, i'm going to ask you to continue to be political now because you, you're desperate for this uh, friday show to have some kind of forward-facing element to it right and normally what we do is we spend so much time talking about the past and i interrupt so much that we lose this element off the end but we're here now and no one's got a meeting at 11 so uh you've written here that you, you you're excited about an intriguing little battle between Zinchenko and Bukayo Saka that could occur this weekend because, of course, Arsenal play Manchester City on Sunday. What are your expectations? And tell us in detail so that we can laugh at you on Tuesday. Well, it, it feels like a, a, a battle in isolation because, obviously, City are heavy favourites for that game. At the same time, though, like I really, we, we had James McNicholas on the pod quite a while ago and we talked about what it might look like if Saka played off the right and he was kind of knifing into the to an area... Um, in Arsenal's formation, which at the time there wasn't a lot happening in, because it was they were they were during that they were encountering that phase where, and during that phase even where they were just banging crosses into the box with no centre forward to aim for, um, and in light of kind of Meza Özil's annexation from the side, there was nothing happening in the kind of the ten position, and so one of the theories we explored was the idea that you could have Saka coming in off his wing, penetrating that area. And creating a little bit of danger and and and, and presence um, there, and I, I wonder whether I wonder whether that's becoming more of a part of Arsenal's game plan. And obviously, you know, this weekend we'll put him up against Sinchenko, who I think is actually he's improved beyond what I thought he was six months ago. I thought he was kind of like he's in the team in the sort of the the Fabian Delft way, in the sense that yeah. right, well, Mendy's you know his body's kind of let him down, so Sinchenko's a good enough footballer really to to sort of fairly inoffensively fill anywhere on the pitch, any position. So it's just interesting. I, 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 I'm also long-term Saka's intriguing because I think that's probably his best role. And yet, is that where he would have an England future, for instance, because of how much talent Southgate has in those wide forward roles? Is he going to be a fullback? I don't think so, but he could play there. Could he be a left winger? Yes, but probably not quite the same to, with the same effect. So it's a kind of it's part of a long term conversation, I think. Okay, I, I like that, and uh, thank you, thanks for that, Seb. And in the spirit of uh, forward facing, Alex, I'm going to put you to uh, the test now. Okay, you're a football expert, would you say? Um, I, I can't, <laughs> I can't answer that. Question. Let me just ask one more time. You're a you're a football expert, would you say? Because you certainly yes, paid us yes, one. Yes, Joe, I, I am. Thank a, you. <laughs> Thank yeah, you. Okay. That's a fair point. That's good, because yeah. if you said no, I'm thinking, well, hold on a second. Pretty sure our <laughs> employers are listening. Uh, okay, so as a football expert, you'll be able to tell me the result of Liverpool-Everton on uh, Saturday at uh, 5.30. Yeah, well, it depends if it's a Premier League Liverpool that turn up or the Liverpool that played against Leipzig. Um, no context, so... just the result, please. 3-1 to Liverpool. Oh, goodness me. Okay. And uh, Seb, of course, as a football expert, and I know you'll agree that you are, you'll be able to tell me the outcome of the Aston Villa-Leicester City game at 2pm on Sunday. I think Villa win. I think 2-1. 2-1. Okay. Well, just because I'm not a spoil sport, I'm going to throw my hat in the ring too. Uh, and I'm going to predict that uh, uh, 
Brighton will beat Crystal Palace uh, 2-0 on uh, 8pm on Monday. So there we go. Just uh, long enough after we record so that we can't actually examine my prediction. There we go. Hey, anyway, listen, this is the TIFO Football Podcast. Thanks so much to everybody for listening. What a delightful time we've had here today. Uh, to you, Seb Stafford-Bloor. Thanks, Joe. And to Alex Stewart. Thanks, Joe. We'll be back on Tuesday with more after the weekend game relevance and probably other stuff too, uh, including more of Joe's player quotes and facts list. Uh, So join us then. And until then, have a lovely weekend and au revoir. Athletic.